Amen. It's really good to be with you. And I know uh, Roland said no sermons, but I assume he wasn't talking about me. It's all right. We'll just, yeah. Um, hey, if you have a Bible, turn to 1 John chapter 5. That's where we're going to be. 1 John chapter 5. These last few weeks, we've been looking at 1 John, specifically what John says about Jesus and the centrality of Jesus being the Christ. And last week, we got into a whole bunch of this first century history and all the stuff that was happening back there. And uh, I think that stuff is fascinating. Afterwards, I walked off the stage, I said to my wife, what'd you think? And she said, well, there's a lot of detail, you know. <laughs> so here's the thing. It's okay if you're not really excited about all of the context of the scriptures, right? That's okay. We don't all have to be equally excited about that stuff. We just need to know it's there and that these scriptures are written out of the context of real stories. And the real story behind 1 John is here's this man, John, who has gotten a lot older. He's been around for a while, but he's not just old, he is mature. And in his maturity, he has narrowed down the faith to a handful of essentials. And that's what we're looking at. And what he's teaching us is that at the center of the faith is Jesus. And while there's a lot of stuff that matters, nothing matters as much is Jesus. Now, part of the reason he believes so strongly about that is he is possibly the last person on earth who walked with Jesus face to face. And so you almost feel this burden he has, like, guys, I was there. Let me tell you what this thing is really about. That burden got intensified because there's starting to be these people who are taking Jesus and appropriating him and fitting him into their philosophies and their ideas. Last week's we talked about the Gnostics and Docetism. Those are two words that you have to understand if you're going to effectively understand what 1 John is all about and what he's writing. Today, I want to introduce you to a person who you need to know about to really understand this letter. Uh, this man is he's kind of like the villain behind the letter 1 John. His name is Serenthus. Now, Serenthus was a Jew who was born in Alexandria, lived in Alexandria, Egypt. Uh, he was educated through Greek thought and philosophy and all that sort of stuff. And around the mid-80s AD, this is probably about five to ten years before John wrote his letter, Serenthus took some ideas from Judaism, some ideas from Greek philosophy, and some ideas from Christianity and kind of merged it all together and started teaching people. There's a lot of different things that he taught that were kind of unique and a little problematic. Like he taught that God didn't create the world, but the, the world was created by angels, like angels far removed from God. He also taught that the Old Testament law was not from God. It was imperfect and it was written by one of these angels. So there's a handful of things that he was teaching that would have been problematic early on in the church, right? But there was one thing in particular that he taught that John cared deeply about. Serenthus taught that Jesus was a man just like any other, so he was the son, the biological son of Joseph and Mary, and that when Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist, as he came up out of the waters of the river, at that moment the spirit of the Christ descended onto Jesus. And that is what gave him all of his miraculous powers. And then that spirit of the Christ left Jesus when he was crucified on the cross and his blood was spilled. So you see kind of the influence of Gnosticism in there, this idea of the spiritual, the physical being very separate. Um, 
The Apostle John was passionate, as you can imagine, that Serenthus was wrong. There's a few extra biblical stories about these two. One of them uh, records John as saying that Serenthus is the enemy of truth. That's how he, he referred to him. So John does not like this guy. Out of curiosity, show of hands, how many of you, prior to me mentioning him, have ever heard the name Serenthus? Show of hands. I'm assuming there's not many hands at home. There's only one here that I saw. Uh, that's not, that's very few of us, right? Can I observe something about this? This is true of the book 1 John, but I would say this is true of the entire New Testament. On the surface level, just reading it, the New Testament is powerful and it is life-changing, but regularly in the New Testament we come across passages that are incredibly hard to understand if we do not know the backstory. And it is incredibly dangerous for us to just take a verse and rip it out of the context of the story in which it was written and make a conclusion about it and then repeat it to others and say, thus saith the Lord, and hurt people because we've misunderstood the verse. That happens quite a bit in the church. Now, at Pulpit Rock, I'm not saying we have it all figured out. We certainly do not. But this is something that I promise you. We are going to fight really hard to keep Scripture in the context that it was written. Because sometimes there are verses that you and I cannot adequately understand apart from that context. We're about to read one of those. In the context for this verse that we're about to read out of 1 John chapter 5, is this man, Serenthus, who taught that Jesus wasn't really the Christ until he came up out of the waters and the Spirit of the Christ descended on him in the water and then the Spirit of the Christ left him when his blood was spilled on the cross. Here is what John writes about that. 1 John chapter 5, verse 6. See if you can connect these dots. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the waters only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. Okay, do you see it? Do you see a little bit of what he's talking about there? Serenthus says, hey, Jesus doesn't become Jesus or doesn't become the Christ, so he comes up out of the water and he stops being the Christ when his blood is spilled on the cross. And John says, no, 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 no. The water, the blood, and the spirit, they all agree with the voice of God that Jesus was always the Christ, that Jesus was always the Son of God, not the Son of Joseph, the Son of God. And anyone who does not believe that is actually taking issue with God himself and calling God a liar. Now notice this, there's probably like 20 different things that John could have attacked Serenthus for, but the only thing that he focuses on is like, listen, this is the center, right? This thing about what we do with Jesus, that is what matters, that Old Testament law stuff, the creation stuff, whatever, but Jesus is the Christ. 
Jesus has always been the Christ. He was always fully God. He was always fully human. And he alone makes a way for us to be spiritually whole. When John says in this passage, whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, like he's not just saying like in general, hey, if, you're, if you've ever doubted, then you're calling God a liar. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying like uh, people who are unsure about Jesus are calling God a liar. He's not saying that. He's not even saying like people who are unbelievers who say, I don't think Jesus is, is the son of God are, are calling God a liar. He is talking specifically about this man about Serenthus. He is saying, this guy, the enemy of truth, Serenthus, does not believe God. God's testimony is Jesus is the Christ, and Serenthus is calling him a liar. Fascinating, right? Why do we need to know the context of Scripture as we read it? Well, for starters, there's going to be moments like this verse where you cannot fully understand this passage without knowing what Serenthus says. Like, you can't. It's weird. All this water, blood, spirit stuff, it is unusual. And there are a fascinating list of very unusual interpretations of this passage that are divorced from the context that John is actually speaking out of. Because they're trying to make sense of something that doesn't make sense if you don't know what Serenth is taught. But here's the second reason we need to understand Scripture in context. Because we have to realize that the battle of the New Testament was primarily about the question, who is Jesus? That's why the book was written or the books were written in the New Testament. Now, that is not all the New Testament talks about, but that is why it was written. And when Christianity started, there's a lot of questions on the table, questions about Jewish theology, about Old Testament law, about Gentile believers, about church practices. But when the persecution really starts in the middle of the first century, uh, like, like it became about one thing. It became about Jesus, that he was God, that he was human, that he was God's plan all along to redeem us and that we only need to have faith in him. Like there's nothing that we add. There's nothing that we bring to the table. We don't have to obey the Old Testament law. We don't have to have all this secret knowledge the Gnostics talk about. It is just Jesus. And so we have to understand when we open up the New Testament that all of these books were written to confirm and defend the identity of Jesus. John is writing in a time uh, where he has seen every other apostle not just die, but be murdered for the faith right? James, Peter, Paul, all those guys are gone. All of them were killed, and they weren't killed because of doctrine or church practices. They were killed because they wouldn't stop proclaiming Jesus is the Christ. He's God. He's human. He's the only way to God. And it's notable to me, it should be notable to us, that here is John, like the last man standing, and what he's not doing is writing these giant tomes of theology. He isn't trying to answer every question for us. He isn't telling us, well, here's what every church should be doing. Here's the official worship style of God, right? Like, that's not what he's doing. He is simply fighting for the identity of Jesus. And he's saying, implication, y'all are going to figure out the rest of this thing. Just stick with Jesus, and the rest will be figured out. One of my favorite metaphors or just pictures of the gospel is a metaphor uh, about Australian cattle farmers. Um, now, I have not fact-checked this, so if you are an Australian cattle farmer, don't come up and tell me I'm wrong. It makes logical sense. I could be wrong, but you, the metaphor works. Apparently, if you have a herd of cows in the Australian outback, you don't have to build a fence to keep them from wandering off, 
it, what you have to do is dig a well, and there's such little water in the surrounding environment, the well would be the only source of water, and because of that well, they will stay pretty close to your property, so they won't wander off. It'll keep the cows close. Here's the simple observation that this metaphor makes. Religion is a fence, not a well. But Jesus, what John is defending, is a well, not a fence. Jesus actually says this in John's gospel, chapter 7. He says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink, and whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. What the apostles were defending was the well. This is why John's speaking so strongly, because he knows this truth. If you just get Jesus right, nothing else matters. If you just get Jesus right, you can be wrong about other stuff and you will stay close to God because Jesus is the well. He also knows if you don't get Jesus right, nothing else matters. Like there is no fence high enough to keep you close to God because you can't drink a fence. It won't quench your thirst. Now, that's not to say there are no boundaries out there and uh, that boundaries are inherently evil. That's not what I'm saying at all. It's okay to talk about doctrine. It is okay to talk about what we believe beyond just the fact that Jesus is the Christ. That's actually the story of church history. That is our history, right? Like, it's people wrestling with all sorts of issues like baptism and creation and church practices. And eventually, in good and bad ways, we as believers, we would build these fences and we would say, I think this is kind of the boundary of what's true. And if you go beyond that, I'm not sure that that stuff is true. There's nothing inherently evil about that practice, but we have to acknowledge this, that those fences that we build are built for a variety of reasons. Sometimes we build fences because uh, we're good-hearted people just trying to figure out an issue, right? As humans, you've probably noticed this. We prefer clarity over mystery, Um, And there's nothing wrong with that. Sometimes God says, no, I have mystery. You're never going to fully understand this aspect. And we have to accept that. But it's okay to look for clarity and say, hey, I think this is actually what's true about that doctrinal issue. But we also have to acknowledge this, that other times in the church, fences were built by fearful people trying to protect themselves from something they found threatening. And like always is true for us as humans, when we're fearful, we kind of overreach and we grab more than we should to try to protect ourselves. And sometimes that has happened and we have built fences in ways that distract from the well. We also have to acknowledge this. A lot of those fences were built as the result of a power struggle within the church. So you have this famous historical Christian and this famous historical Christian and they don't see eye to eye and they have a falling out and this one says, well, everything he says is wrong and I found a verse to prove it. So I'm going to go over here and build my own little enclosure for people who like me who agree with this perspective. And we built fences that created divisions where there should not be divisions because of arguments people had with each other. But the point is, even with those acknowledgments that sometimes we build fences in unhealthy ways and we take up doctrinal stances that separate and that distract from Jesus, it is not inherently wrong for us to have a set of doctrinal beliefs. We all have that. Whether we can articulate it clearly or not, we all have a set of doctrinal beliefs. What is bad is when we build a fence that is not just about trying to understand God, but it becomes about keeping certain people out. 
And what is bad is when we use theology to separate ourselves from people God loves. That is a mistake. What is bad is when we make people sign off on our fences before they can have a taste of the well. Jesus never did that. And what is bad is when we use our theology to keep people from the God who loves them. That's bad. What is bad is when we confuse the fence with the well as if the fence was the point. And we use our theology to hurt people, but you can't drink a fence. It doesn't quench your thirst. The apostles did not do that. They talked about theological issues and doctrinal issues, but none of them died for the fence. The fence didn't save us. Jesus saved us. They died for the well. And while they talked about doctrine, they cared about doctrine, they died because they wouldn't give up the belief that Jesus is the Christ. And that's why John is writing this. That's why he's speaking so decisively. That is the context of the New Testament scriptures. It is the identity of Jesus. And as John got older, that was the singular obsession of his life. Look at what he says next. Verse 11. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. This life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God that you may know you have eternal life. That is beautiful. It's a beautiful section of scripture. Do you see the difference between well language and fence language here? Do you see what John is doing? Hey, if you just have Jesus, if you just believe in Jesus, like that's enough. Like if you have Jesus, you have the most important thing, which is eternal life. When he uses that phrase, eternal life, sometimes we get hung up on this. Eternal life is not a quantitative description, meaning like you will live forever. Um, Like everyone, like everyone lives forever. Like we realize this, right? It's just a question of where. Like everyone lives forever. Eternal life is not that big of a deal. We all have it, right? When he says eternal life, it's a qualitative term. He's saying you're going to have real life the thing you were meant for, and it is going to continue for all eternity. That's what you get when you put faith in Jesus. And you can be wrong about all the rest, and you still get that because it is about what Jesus has done. You don't get that because of your behavior. You don't get that because of your conduct. You don't get that because of your understanding of important theological concepts. It's not the fence that gives you life. It is simply believing and hoping in this Savior Jesus that gives us life. Do you know uh, in the first century in John's day who the, the two worst fence builders were? There was actually two groups that really did this a lot. The first was a group called the Judaizers. Uh, and then later on in the first century was this group that we've been talking about called the Gnostics. What the Judaizers basically taught was this. Hey, Jesus is great, love Jesus, but you still need to obey all the Old Testament laws to be accepted. That's what they taught. The Gnostics we've talked about, they taught this. Uh, Jesus is great, but you, you need like this secret knowledge to obtain the spiritual fullness that we all long for and to become spiritually whole. There was like this intense fence building and all these requirements that these two groups would build. And it was actually the apostles themselves who came along and said, no, no, it is way simpler than that. 
All you need is Jesus. That's all this is about, is faith in Him. And when someone says you have to behave in certain ways to get God, that's not Jesus. That's not our thing. And when someone says, hey, you got to believe all these complicated things to get God, that's also not Jesus. The apostles were the ones who say, hey, the people who say that stuff, they're trying to keep you from God. It is just about Jesus and this God who loves you. All you need is Jesus. Just believe he loves you. He forgives you. That's all you need. It is mercy. It is a free gift. And all of those other things are an attempt to make it about us and what we do and what we think. That's not how it started in the New Testament. It was very simple. It was very focused on Jesus. What is a shame is that 2,000 years of trying to live this thing out, we as the people of God, like that you will still find churches, a bunch of them, who will subtly and sometimes not so subtly say things like, hey, you had better behave. You'd better behave. Like you better fully commit to God or God's going to be mad at you. And hey, you better believe the right thing. You believe that? That's no, no, no. You better believe the right way and the right things or God is going to be displeased. And still, 2,000 years of trying to live this thing out, we're still struggling to connect to the core message of the New Testament that John is bringing to us. It is about Jesus. If you have him, you have eternal life. You know, we, the people of God, we've put up so many fences. We've fought so many battles over fence issues. I don't know about you, but sometimes I, like, I look at this thing, this project, the church, it, like it just is, it's hard to even find the well in it sometimes. I don't know if you've ever felt that. I have, and sometimes I'm like, gosh, I'm really thirsty. There's got to be a well around here somewhere. And I see a thirsty world, and you can't drink a fence. John is fighting for the well. He is fighting for a singular focus on Jesus, and I think we as his spiritual descendants need to fight for the same. Now, John's going to end his letter, verse 14 through 21, with like a whole bunch of important statements. I want to remind you, like we're not going linearly through John. So uh, verse 14 through 21, there's a lot of relevant stuff there. There's some interesting things that people have argued about for years. Uh, I'm not going to have time to talk about them this morning, but we posted a video, a video of bonus content, which I think makes it sound so fun. It's a bonus. Have you ever left a sermon and been like, I could go for more of that? Today's your day, right? <laughs> Bonus content. Uh, it's on Pulpit Rock Mobile. Um, anyway, links in the bulletin. But today, I, I, I just want to pause and acknowledge something as we close that I feel like is, is an important thing to talk about with us. Uh, these last few weeks, we've talked about a lot of contextual things, a lot of history stuff that I find really fascinating. Uh, if you're a church history geek like me, you might have found these last three weeks like really great. If you're my wife, maybe not. Um, maybe that hasn't been high on your list. But heretics, Gnostic, Docetism, Serenthus, I mean, that's some pretty nerdy stuff. Can I share a fear that I have in sh talking about this stuff? Here's the fear that I have. I don't want to shake your confidence that you can read the Bible and effectively understand it for yourself. Like, you can. You don't need me up here interpreting it all for you. You have the Holy Spirit. You can read the Bible and effectively understand it for yourself. And I want us all to read our Bible. I just want us to read it responsibly. And what that means, this is the premise I start with, is I think we have to read it with this understanding. The New Testament did not descend from heaven on strings of gold. 
It's not what it is. New Testament is a 2,000-year-old library of books penned from the minds of humans in partnership with the Holy Spirit, written in the context of real human wrestling with faith. That's what it is. And I just think we need to be aware, because in our tribe, there are some spiritual traditions that out of their reverence for Scripture, and with an attempt to elevate Scripture, they have done us all a disservice by making it something that it's not. And when someone says phrases like, phrases like this float around, well, the Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it. You know, when we say that without looking at the context from which the biblical writers write, it's a clever bumper sticker, but like these scriptures were spoken into the lives of real people 2,000 years ago with real situations they were struggling with. And the true meaning of the scriptures depends on that knowledge and understanding that. And because of that, I think when we say stuff like the Bible says it and that settles it, like if we don't look at the context, what we're really saying is the Bible says what I think it says and that settles it. That's a dangerous place to live. Hear me on this. The New Testament scriptures are authoritative in my life and in my ministry. And my hope is that they are for you too. But this is true. We honor the authority of scripture when we take time to understand the context of scripture. And we actually minimize the authority of Scripture in our lives by believing that our mind, 2,000 years later, can effectively discern everything an author meant without context. Sometimes the context of verses changes the meaning of the verses, and that does not undermine the authority of Scripture. Saying in context, this verse might mean something than it appears to mean on the surface, that actually honors Scripture for what it is, this divine partnership between human mind and Holy Spirit. We need to read our Bibles, but we need to read it responsibly and with appropriate humility and awareness. And what I want to acknowledge, uh, because I know some of you have suffered because of this, and I, like we just have to acknowledge it uh, as compassionate believers, we have to acknowledge this. The Bible and some theological opinions derived from it without context have been used to hurt many people through the years. That's not why the Bible was written, to hurt people with theology. In context, we see the New Testament was written to confirm the identity of Jesus. That is the purpose of the book, and we need to keep it in that context. Let me give you some advice. Here's a couple of resources that can help you. There's some amazing resources, better resources now to do this, to read scripture in context than at any point in the history of time. Here's a couple that I like. Uh, one, uh, two websites and then one book. One is soniclight.org. Uh, take a picture of that, bookmark it. This is a great online commentary on the entire Bible by a, a great theologian named Dr. Constable. If you want a just solid starting place for understanding a scripture that you're reading, that's a good place to start. Let me give you another uh, website, stepbible.org. If you have never been to Step Bible, go to stepbible.org. This is probably the easiest resource for understanding the original languages of the Bible that is out there today. So ancient Greek, ancient Hebrew. Like if you want to know, hey, what is the Greek word that the scholars are looking at to translate it into this English word? And how many other times is that word used in the Bible? And what is it translated at those times? Stepbible.org will get you there. 
Here's a book that you can pick up. It's a little pricey, but it's worth it. It's a book called The New Testament in Its World by the great theologian N.T. Wright. If you want to understand a little bit better just the historical context that the scriptures are written in, this is a great place to start. So, at the end of the day, this is what I want you to hear. This is what John is saying, and I think this is the entire context of the New Testament. There is a lot of spiritual stuff that matters. There's a lot of theology, a lot of doctrine, a lot of opinions and issues to think about. But nothing matters as much as this. Jesus is who he said he is. That's what matters most. If you have that, you have eternal life. And after 50 years of living this faith out, after the first 50 years of living the faith out, John looks back and that is what he's got. That's what he saw his friends die for. That's what he is ready to die for. He would not budge on that. And we respect the authority of scriptures when we hold on to Jesus tightly and hold doctrinal issues with humility. In 2,000 years, I would say we've probably had enough fights about secondary issues of doctrine. When we are old like John is old, if we are mature like John is mature, then I think we will realize that those secondary issues were not worth blowing up relationships for. And also, when we are mature like John is mature, we might observe the fact that in 2,000 years, we haven't been able to resolve them all. And there's a lesson in that for us. The lesson is we all, all of us, are fallible human beings with imperfect knowledge of God. That's the lesson. That's why in 2,000 years, it's not like it's getting clearer on all these issues. We're still wrestling with some of the same ones. God is bigger than our brains, and he did not intend everything about him to be simple and obvious. So we should not act like it is. What God did do is he stooped down to our level so that we could know him. What God did make simple and obvious is this truth. Jesus is the Christ. And what that truth confirms is that God so loved this world that if we have the Son, we have eternal life. That's what it confirms. And I think what we see in John is he's at this point in his journey where he's concluded, you know, that thing that God so loved the world that he sent Jesus, that is the only thing worth dying for. And I think we would be wise to respect his authority, to speak to us in our lives, and maybe conclude the same, and maybe even conclude this, that if we wouldn't die for it, we shouldn't pick a fight over it. Just because something is biblical, just because it's a biblical issue, doesn't mean it's an essential issue. Jesus is the Christ, that is the essence of it. This is the message of 1 John, keep Jesus first in your life. That is the essential issue. Eternal life is found in that. It is not found in theology or doctrine or philosophy or politics. It is found in the person of Jesus Christ. Do you think, do you think that we could be a community that stays focused on that? And a community that is incredibly gentle and humble about secondary issues with one another. Gosh, I'd really love to be a part of that sort of community, wouldn't you? 
Maybe we could pray to that end. God, we invite you to do something here that we see in our 2,000 years of history in the church that you have been trying to do multiple times. We invite you to keep us focused on the center. We invite you to make us the sort of people who don't get worked up about all sorts of things, but they get very worked up about your son, Jesus Christ. We repent and we ask your forgiveness for those ways that we've made secondary issues primary. And we invite you to refine us and make us a place that is gentle and humble of heart. Thank you for the scriptures, Lord. And thank you for their unified message about your son. May we be as unified in our message as your scriptures are.